Welcome to our second season of Shooting the Breeze. This time, we're casting our net wider. We're going to be talking to inspiring athletes, amazing coaches, and behind-the-scenes trailblazers from across the women's basketball landscape. As we start the run-up to another WNBL season and the FIBA Women's World Cup being held right here in Sydney, this is a great time to be a fan of Australian women's basketball. Don't forget to subscribe and be the first to know when we have more hoops goodness headed your way. This week on Shooting the Breeze, we're joined by David Reid. David is the chairman of the organising committee for the FIBA Women's World Cup being held in Sydney in September 2022, as well as being a member of the Central Board of FIBA. David gives us an insight into his background, the journey to secure the World Cup, and a look at what this event will mean for Australian women's basketball. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Joining me today is my guest, David Reid, Chairman of the FIBA Women's World Cup, being held in Sydney in just under a year. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. David, look, I actually want to start off by asking a little bit of an odd question. We spoke with Maria Nordstrom last year in our first season, and just recently we found out you were very heavily involved in the bid process. So before we get into the meat and potatoes of this interview, I'd really like to find out what's involved in winning a world-class event like this for Australia. Well, ultimately, it's a decision that is made by the central board of FIBA, that is the, the world governing board. They make the decision based upon submissions that they receive from interested parties um, who might want to host the World Cup, and that applies to the, to the male World Cup, the female World Cup, and, and any other event that they have that there's a contested bidding process. So the decision is made by the central board. The unique aspect uh, of this bid was that some, I'm going to say 10 years ago or more, the then chairman of Basketball Australia, Ned Coton, and I, the deputy, uh, were pulled into a meeting with the then Secretary General of FIBA. Uh, In fact, Ned would not have been the chairman at that time, but Ned and I as directors of Basketball Australia we're in a meeting in Geneva uh, with the Secretary-General of FIBA, Patrick Bauman, and he uh, was keen for us representatives of Australian basketball to take a leadership role in the women's sport internationally. He said to us that Basketball Australia uh, is very good at running uh, women's events uh, and performs well beyond its weight in the international arena in female events, and we'd like Basketball Australia to host a a World Cup event. Now, we saw that as a very clear indicator that they wanted us to do it. So we then, um, you know, them liking us to do it and BA doing it were at the time two very different things. Obviously, financially, BA wasn't in a state to be able to run an event like that on its own. So we then set a course with the Board of Basketball Australia in the support of Bronwyn Marshall, who's the Deputy Chair, and other board members at the time, along with uh, Bob Elphinstone, who's a previous Chairman of FIBA internationally, who's an Australian in Sydney. We uh, then set a course to be able to make the bid uh, when we did. That involved me going to the Women's World Cup in Tenerife, uh, the last Women's World Cup, and scoping out the things that were needed to be uh, undertaken on the ground to be able to run the event, uh, which was a pretty detailed 
a week-long mission and uh, reporting back to the board of Basketball Australia as to what was needed to then you know, do an assessment of how we might be able to do it financially, and that needed the support of government. New South Wales government were keen to do something. They had a program at the time, 10 World Cups in 10 years. You've probably heard of that. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, we were not on that list. They had a list of 10 that they wanted to pitch, and basketball was not on the list, so we had to convince the politicians of the desire of basketball to be on the list. Uh, I then had to undertake a political route to get us on the list, to get the interest. I had meetings with Rod McGeoch um, and, yep. and other people with Destination New South Wales. Rod McGeoch, I should say, was the chairman of the group that ran that list of 10. Right. Uh, and then we set about the process from there. We worked closely with Basketball New South Wales, Maria Nordstrom, and ultimately we made a bid. I don't think a lot of people really understand exactly how complex something like this is. Even when it's signalled, we want you to have the event. Yeah, There's well, so much that has to go on. That's right. We thought, obviously, they, there was an indicator that they wanted us to do it. And as I said at the start, you know, we, we really weren't in a financial position to do it. So we weren't about to you know, sell the farm to host the event. But by the same token, even though they were keen for us to, to host something... You know, we pitched the Women's World Cup as being what they were really talking about. But we were, it was a competitive process. Russia was also one of the bidding parties and we had to sort of beat Russia in the vote. We had to produce a, you know, a bid that was compelling, which we did. It was also very difficult because we were all supposed to go over to Geneva for the pitch for sort of a week yeah, <clears throat> face-to-face. Uh, then COVID hit about two and a half weeks before we were supposed to leave. <laughs> Uh, so suddenly we had to pitch to the central board by Zoom, basically, added to the delicate circumstances that I'm on the central board. So, yeah. um, you know, I'm the chair and I'm the lead of the whole thing, but I couldn't be involved in the pitch. I had to sit there. <laughs> so that was also um, an interesting journey. But that's basically how the process from, you know, idea to to now uh, occurred from the point of view of us succeeding in the bidding process. It never ceases to amaze me about exactly how many people you have to pull together to be able to to get an, an event like this over the line. But not, as you said, not only within basketball world, but also the political support that's required to be able to yeah. do that. It's a real credit to the entire team. And yes. I'm sure every basketball fan is going to be really looking forward to seeing the games next year. One of the things that I'm sure, look, I'm sure a lot of people know David Reed, but equally, I'm sure there's a number of people in basketball world who don't know David Reed. Um, can we just get in a little bit of your background in relation to your involvement with basketball? Sure. Um, now, the fans can't see this, but I can. I can see a couple of basketballs and some photos over your shoulder. So you've obviously had quite a long-standing involvement with basketball. And I'd say probably up in the Hunter region as well. Yeah. I'm kind of happy that I've flown underneath the radar to um, <laughs> to sort of put into colloquial terms what you've described. But um, I have been involved in the administration of basketball, or the playing and administration of basketball for many years. I am somewhat happy that I have flown under the radar because my role is is pretty significant, but I don't want to shout it from the rooftops. You know, I'm just not that sort of person. Um, yep. 
So I played basketball. I started reasonably late. I didn't start until I was 15 or 16. I played for New South Wales a few years after starting. That was in the under-16s. My age group was strong. We go up by two years, each age group in in our sport, and you're either a bottom-age or a top-age player. I played for New South Wales as a bottom-age player in a top-age competition that had Luke Longley, Andrew Vlahov, Shane Hill, Andre Lamanis, you know, the, the age, my age group was very strong. Um, yeah. And therefore, you know, I really, as a player, was always never really going to make the heights of those guys, you know. As a top age player, I got asked to try out uh, at the Institute of Sport. I work very closely these days with a fellow by the name of Patrick Hunt, um, who was the then coach of the Institute of Sport, who delights in telling me these days that he cut me back then. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I, yeah, I didn't make it to the Institute of Sport. Uh, I went instead to, uh, I, I live in Newcastle, and I'm born and bred in Newcastle. I got asked to go to Sydney to a private school called Barker College uh, on an academic scholarship. Anyway, finished uh, at Barker. I came home and played for Newcastle. Uh, I never played NBL. Uh, yeah. I had to make a decision between study and sport. I was a chartered accountant in my original career. I had to make it that decision early. I then became a lawyer, did law and qualified in both disciplines, accounting and law. As you can imagine, there wasn't a lot of whole time, a whole lot of time left to be able to play a really yeah. high level of sport. But Absolutely I continued not. playing uh, and I still play. I still play to this day. My son is now playing uh, high level of representation, uh, and he and I still play together once a week. Whilst I took the academic path and the career path of my decision instead of the basketball path, I always was known by some of the powers that be as um, a person who had obviously basketball ingrained, but had that business accounting legal experience and abilities. So I got asked by uh, two board members of basketball in New South Wales, John Davidson from uh, Port Macquarie and Adrian Hurley. Adrian was the chairman of Basketball New South Wales and I was asked to go onto the board of Basketball New South Wales as an invitee to specialise in these accounting, legal uh, governance type issues. A couple of years into that role, there was significant discord between each of the states and territories associations and basketball Australia at the time. Um, Some of the influential states, New South Wales being one of them, decided that they should try and build a bridge with BA uh, and Victoria appointed, nominated someone and New South Wales nominated me to go onto the board of Basketball Australia to try and make a connection. The, The Victorian fellow was Ned Coton, who I mentioned a moment ago. Yes. And Ned ended up being the chairman and I ended up being the deputy we worked quite closely together on the Basketball Australia board for many years. We then, to the next level, realised that BA needed to really make a connection with FIBA internationally, both as to uh, having a voice in deliberations, but also, you know, the whole competition structure was changing within FIBA and we realised those decisions were being thrust on Basketball Australia without having a real um, seat at the table. So Ned was elected onto the uh, competitions committee of FIBA and I was elected onto the legal commission of FIBA. Uh, and then ultimately I was appointed in 2019 to the central board of FIBA. There's 
nine elected positions and I'm one of those. That's, I mean, it's quite a journey when you really get into it. You've had quite a journey from, you know, player right the way through to the position that you've reached now. I've got to say, it's really impressive from the point of view of the engagement that basketball, New South Wales and Basketball Australia have taken in terms of understanding we need to have a commercial business mind to our sport. It can't just be about the sport anymore. We're also about we're about trying to generate and, and make this more of a, um, a long-term prospect within a country where really there's four or five really major sports that suck up most of the audience and yeah. eyeballs. So from my point of view, looking at it as someone who's been heavily involved in business for many, many years, I think it is a great move to see that done as a proactive approach. I agree with you. Um, there's no doubt if basketball is going to play in the big leagues, as it, it does, it's, it's, it's a popular sport. It's um, grassroots participation is significant when compared even with, you know, AFL, rugby league, uh, soccer, uh, netball, you know, it's right up there. But there is a balance, I think, is, is important, Paul, to remember that you can't have a board of all business people and um, lawyers and accountants, you know, I think the sport, and this is the point, the sport needs a blend of interested basketball people and those, you know, leaders of industry and business. I think that the sports that enable those two very different personalities to work together on a board succeed in most circumstances. But then to find someone, this is back to inward looking of myself, to find someone who has the sport inbuilt yeah. and has the business and the legal and the, and the accounting, that's been the catalyst to me elevating through the ranks on this journey that you've described. Without a doubt, you need to have, I'm not meaning it to be trite, but you need the fans and you need the business-based fans to work together to be able to build the organisation that will then help to build the sport overall. And I know we're totally going off <laughs> off script now, but I think one of the areas where it's really, and it's always been a question for me, is that whole area of there's so many people who are playing, but where do we get that continued engagement and how do we grow the engagement of taking those people and making them fans at the elite level? You know, uh, and we talked about this just a little bit before we, we started the interview. There's so many people out there that go to watch games at association, but they don't seem to always translate in the same numbers to like a level like the WNBL. And mm. it's, I think events like this are going to help catalyze, bring the, some of those fans across, but it's really important for us to identify why that doesn't happen so that we can try and bring them over and help to build the local elite competitions. Yeah, look, there's no doubt that's a part of the legacy motivation to undertake this project of running the World Cup. It strikes a chord on a number of different levels, Paul. It's, you know, firstly, it's the players um, who, you know, the young girls who might see their hero playing in the World Cup in Sydney, who might then be motivated to play at a much higher level and want to be that person. That's certainly the story that Lauren Jackson has relayed to me personally, where she um, was a young girl who saw the 1994 edition of the Women's World Cup run in Sydney, and that she credits that 
seeing that level of playing live um, as the motivator to get her to the level that she did, which is quite amazing. So I think there's the the player that's already playing who might then strive for a higher level. There's the player, the young lady or boy who who doesn't play at all, who sees this and then is motivated to give it a go. Yep. I think that, that's a level. I think the parents who see what a wonderfully gifted athlete the female elite basketballer is uh, yes. and might be motivated to see their daughter go along, to see the level of competition. I mean, it, it's fantastic live. That might motivate your analogy, fans who might go to a local association that might motivate them to go to a WNBL game. That, that's certainly been another example that I've seen firsthand where, you know, the parents of the kids, they like going to watch and be entertained with their kids. Uh, and if the parent is um, motivated by the kid wanting to go to the WNBL game, then I think that's, you know, everyone's, everyone's a winner. Both the parents, the elite player who goes to the next level, the junior player who, you know, might not have been a player at all and the whole family as a group. It's a legacy. Definitely. And I know for a fact that my co-host Jacinta is a prime example of this because she often relates the story of being driven from the Central Coast down to Sydney to watch the Flames play. I might let Jacinta sort of get in and talk about this because it, it is a very important point, the, the whole role modelling of these elite athletes for the kids and also for families is just so important. Yeah, I totally agree. So what you were saying, David, before was very um, nostalgic for me because that is essentially my experience as a young player. Um, Even growing up playing, uh, watching the local semi-professional league, which was way before Waratah, it was, I couldn't even tell you what it was called, maybe CBA and we had the Central Coast Cavaliers. Yep. Um, even watching them on a Saturday night in freezing winter, um, mum would take me to, to see those games. I have also mentioned on a previous podcast that I have a very awesome mum who used to not only take me to those games and the WNBL games and park next to Annie Lafleur's car and stuff like that, but she also used to take us to a lot of the junior nationals tournaments, like under-16s and 18s nationals if they were in Newcastle or Canberra so we could get exposed to that. And that was ultimately a big part of what um, fueled me to pursue a career, I say, <laughs> in quotation marks in basketball. And obviously it was fond memories of bonding with my mum because she, she got to take me on those trips and I'll always be grateful for, for that as well. I think that that story resonates and Paul resonates the whole of Australia. I mean, here we are at Newcastle Lab talking about the connection with Sydney and Jacinta from the Central Coast, Sydney, you can overlay the same concepts, Jacinta, with, um, you know, you think of the volume of uh, young Jacintas that there are uh, in Vic Metro or, you know, the young Jacintas that are in country Victoria who, you know, that's not as broad a state as New South Wales as far as geography is concerned and a road trip from Bendigo down to Melbourne um, to watch the WNBL is not a dissimilar thing to what you've been doing with your mum. So I think that this tournament that we're bringing, the Women's World Cup, has a number of different levels uh, of attraction and legacy. And that, you know, we could talk about this for hours, frankly, and I'm happy to, you know, have the discussion again because we have a complete legacy plan 
that has four different levels in it. And we're only just talking about a very small microcosm of one of those four levels. Look, I'd love to get you back because there's so much to talk about in relation to the World Cup. It's just this huge subject. Again, I'm trying to give people an indication of exactly how complex the beast that is the World Cup is. And they may not really fully understand the function of the local organising committee. Yeah. So maybe you could give us a quick outline of everything that the LOC does in relation to the event. Well, that's a pretty broad um, question. <laughs> um, basically, the legal structure and governance position is that I mentioned earlier that FIBA awards to the National Federation, that is Basketball Australia, the right to run the event. So basically, Basketball Australia is um, given the responsibility of running the event and enters into what's called a host nation agreement with FIBA that has a number of um, you know, rights and obligations that are imposed upon Basketball Australia. The model that is applied worldwide with respect to running events such as this, and it stems from the Olympics, is that there's a local organising committee, an LOC, that yep. is implemented to run the event on the ground. Now, from Basketball Australia's perspective, uh, we initiated a separate company right. um, that is a wholly owned subsidiary of Basketball Australia, and that subsidiary is the LOC and is running the event. The reason for that is that uh, there's a separation of the rights and obligations because there's some serious uh, legal and uh, financial obligations that are adopted in yeah. running the event. Yeah. The idea of having a separate legal entity to the mothership that is BA yes. you know, makes a lot of sense from an asset you know, protection perspective. So too, um, the LOC needs its own entire... Uh, fleet of employees uh, and, and, and management team and volunteers. And the experience within international sport is if you try and run an event of the size of this within the existing National Federation, you've got a blurring of yeah. um, priorities and a blurring of initiatives and a blurring, of, frankly, of finances, where if Basketball Australia is trying to run the sport you know, nationally, on a business as usual, everyday type perspective, and then you throw in a World Cup with you know different employees doing different things and finances going in different directions. The the sound way to do it and the proper way is to have a separate organisation that is purely focused on running the event, and that's I hope a bit of an explanation of where an LOC comes from, why, and and how it integrates. Yeah, look, I really see a whole lot of benefits for that because apart from everything else if it could be done as part of the whole BA and, and federated uh, structure of basketball it becomes this huge very unwieldy thing and anyone who's been in a big meeting with more than half a dozen people knows it's really hard to get a decision because you've got so many different opinions coming into the mix. Well I think it's important to to identify that we are answerable to BA um, yeah, of course. We, we have such a wonderful relationship with BA, obviously stemming from the fact that there was significant connection between the LOC and the BA from the get-go. Yeah, We go off and run the event, but we answer weekly slash fortnightly slash monthly to BA. It's not as if we're a lone soldier that's out there running the show. We're underwritten by BA and um, we answer to them and we have complete respect. But 
on the flip side, there's also confidence that BA has that we're running the show well, yeah. um, that everything's covered and that BA can then continue to focus on its business as usual activities. Mm. It's not a complete separation. It's a an operational separation to ensure the optimum outcome for both the event and for BA. Yeah, I understand. One of the things that, that interests me about the whole event is there's two parts to it from my perspective. So there's the event itself, and then there's what's going to follow after the event. And you've mentioned the legacy program, and obviously the board must have a vision of what they're hoping will happen for basketball going beyond the event. Can you give us an indication of what sort of things that the board is hoping that the World Cup will catalyze or will launch for basketball within Australia? In the five minutes that we have left for me to answer that question, maybe I'll give you one snapshot. The LOC has adopted a complex legacy plan. It's a document. It's a written document that identifies the four tiers of legacy that the event is trying to foster by being hosted by BA. The first legacy tier is the local legacy plan. That That is yep. within New South Wales, effectively. The second tier up is uh, the National Legacy Plan, the legacy plan that's being uh, implemented Australia-wide. The next tier up is a regional uh, legacy plan, which is a plan that's focused on FIBA's Oceania region, our friends New Zealand and um, Samoa and Fiji and out into the islands. Yep. Uh, and the last uh, and highest plan uh, in the legacy plan is the international plan. Now, each of those tiers has its own plan within itself. To try and help give an example of, of one of the practical things that we want to try, we, we need to be careful we don't try and bite off too much here. We need to try and focus and make sure that we, uh, we get an outcome. So one of the things that happened very early in the piece, I mentioned that Maria Nordstrom from Basketball New South Wales and the then chairman of Basketball New South Wales, Bob Elphinstone, were involved in the process early in the piece because we saw the potential to um, implement within New South Wales a very strong and tangible legacy plan. And that plan is underway at the moment. Maria, funded by, thankfully, by the New South Wales government, uh, has a, a number of additional new employees within Basketball New South Wales who are rolling out an engagement program with women and girls in New South Wales. Um, right. that, that, that's a plan that, uh, as I said, is documented, uh, it's funded, it's got bodies, uh, you know, filling the gaps that would otherwise be there if we didn't have this event and the funding to be able to increase the volume of participation of females in our sport. Now, that is both introductory young players keeping interested those existing players, attracting parents um, to, to become coaches and um, score bench and other uh, match officials. That's a, a broad, expansive plan to improve and strengthen female participation at numbers of different levels in our sport in New South Wales, full stop. And that's happening. We're being, we, we're getting... As I said, it's underway. Uh, we receive reports monthly from Maria and Basketball New South Wales as to the volume of touch points on all of these various metrics 
I'm pleased to say that it's it's really working well. We've got another year to go until the event, so it's going to even get better. You know, it's exciting at this early stage, and I'm sure that the local associations within New South Wales will know exactly what I'm talking about because they will have had touch points with Basketball New South Wales in this regard. The example I'm giving you of how that is parlayed is that Maria and her team have worked up a model, and that is a concept plan, a blueprint with peripheral information and documentation, a whole suite of information that can be given to a local association, for example, to attract young women and adult females into the sport. That blueprint is being replicated up into the next level of our legacy plan nationally. So this isn't just a New South Wales show. This is a whole of sport, a whole of country legacy to increase the engagement and involvement of young girls and women in our sport. We're using New South Wales as the starting point. Uh, It's also a focus because the majority of um, people who are going to come to the Games will be in New South Wales, be from New South Wales. We're going to roll that out nationally so that the same expansive approach to attracting young females and women to our sport will be replicated just as it is in Bankstown uh, in Sydney. It could be, um, you know, delivered in Mount Gambier, in Logan, in Brisbane, in, you know, any other association Australia-wide via Basketball Australia into the state governing body or state or territory governing body and then down to the local association. We thought that really important to structure it and then have it portable and expandable across the whole of Australia. Great. It sounds like a really exciting program and it's something that we're definitely going to want to try and keep across as we continue on the journey towards the World Cup and also obviously when we do touch base with not only yourself but you know other people involved in the World Cup as we continue that journey along. Now, David, I do understand that you are a busy man and you do have something else on. So I really appreciate your time. I definitely would love to get you back on the show because there's a whole lot more that I'd love to get into. I'm happy Um, to do that. You know, I really, uh, sorry to interrupt, don't hesitate. You know, this, this is a story that needs to be told so that we increase the volume of interest, you know, and I'm very keen to do that. That's why I started this 10 years ago, as I described. So don't hesitate. I'm happy to speak with you monthly or whatever it takes. No, that'd be great. David, thanks so much. Really appreciate your time. Jacinta, thanks so much for your time as well. And we'll speak to you soon. We will. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.